Hey now, welcome back everyone. This is Matt Pindola and I am your host for the Relative Run Readiness Podcast. R3 for short, guys. Okay, let's let's make that a hashtag thing. Let's make it happen. R3. Um, Brody Sharp is my guest for today. And he is a host of his own podcast called the Run Smarter Podcast. And I've been listening to his show for a while now, loving the podcast. And yes, I, I'm running smarter when I listen to his podcast. That's why I listen to it while I run. I feel like it gets absorbed a little bit right more into my gate when I run listening to his podcast. No, but he is a wealth of information. He has his Bachelor of Health Science and Master's of Physiotherapy. So the guy knows what he's talking about, and he knows quite a bit about injuries and how we can work towards overcoming injuries. We can't prevent them entirely. We can't say that we'll never get them, but we can have some of the right answers for how we can progress and how we can minimize our risk for injuries, how we can get back on track if we've been dealing with injuries. In fact, Brody really specializes in long-term, more chronic injuries. Hamstring tendinopathy, for example, is one of his his passions to be able to help people get through that. So I encourage you guys to listen to his podcast as well. But for today, we talked quite a bit about mechanical loading, for example, how we should work towards strength training and what kind of progressions work best, as well as just fractionalized training through our running, how we can build up in our running progressions. We talk about a lot of things, but we also talk about whether or not we should be using foam rollers, for example, or massage therapists. What type of modalities really work for us, both short and long term? So I think you guys can really get a lot out of this one. Uh, Brody has a wealth of knowledge that he shared with us today. Love the podcast. Want him to come back on again. And I'm also going to be collaborating with with Brody a little bit more in the future. So I'll tell you guys all about that as we go along, but excited to send you guys this one. Have fun. Brody, how are you, buddy? I'm good. Thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm excellent. And as always, I've talked about Brody's podcast and why I listen myself, why I love listening to his advice. As a physio, he brings a very interesting perspective to the running world. And listen to Brody, listen to Brody, listen to Brody, guys. I have taken so many bullet points from Brody's show, and it actually gives me some great ideas with my own coaching, what I've done with athletes, especially in the past few months. I can definitely say that there's a reflection of Brody and much of my language. So I'm a big fan. You guys should certainly listen to Brody's podcast. And Brody, would you, I talked before in the beginning of this podcast about your show, what you're all about, what you're up to, but would you just tell the audience why you got started in the podcasting world? And I'm interested in how you kind of niche down into the running world. That's something that I personally did as well, listening to my own podcast. You guys know that the first 150 shows or so were more generalized, and then we went to the running world. But Brody, uh, didn't you do something similar with that? Didn't you uh, niche down to running with your podcast? Yeah, I started 
as a physio <clears throat> treating more and more runners and becoming a runner myself, I recognized not only were, was I having a huge passion for wanting to treat runners when I saw them in the clinic, um, I did see that I was repeating a lot of the same information when they did come in and I would say, talk about like what their cadence is and they wouldn't have an idea about that. And they always said that they need to stretch more and I needed to educate them on that. And I was just having these very similar concepts and these very similar principles that I was trying to relate to every runner. And there was a lot of misconceptions out there from, you know, Googling and just getting varied opinions from different coaches or different uh, runners or members of Facebook groups that I wanted an audio format or I wanted a podcast to just relay that information, make it simple, make it clear for runners. This is what the evidence shows. This is what the evidence doesn't show. And if you are injured or if you're currently trying to um, reduce your risk of injury or increase your performance, how to do so safely, how to overcome those injuries. And yeah, just sparked the the podcast. I loved podcasts beforehand. I constantly listened to podcasts and yeah, just thought it'd be a really, really nice format, a really nice medium just to help provide runners with a lot of clarity and a lot of control if they are injured, how to overcome their injuries. And yes, I do have like running coaches and health professionals listen, but it is tailored for the runner where there's not a lot of highly technical language or anything going on. Um, I try and try and highlight concepts in a basic way that any runner can understand. And yeah, then the podcast was born. Yeah. You do a great job of keeping the science behind the training, but keeping it simple. And that's what I love about your podcast, because I'll admit myself as a coach, sometimes I have difficulty trying to figure out how I can explain things that it's more transferable when it might be somebody that I'll never talk to again. Right. And I was just coaching a camp last weekend where I thought, okay, I finally, I think, started to get these didactics more transferable. And that's why I love doing clinics and I love working with people in person that I've never worked with before so that I can see how that information is being transferred in actual time with people who have never met me before. Uh, but again, I, I give uh, some of those didactics credit to you because I, I did steal some of those concepts that you talk about. And I thought, well, yeah, uh, I need to get Brody on our podcast. And it was, it was amazing coincidence because your name was literally up on our board for our management meeting when we talked about who we want to get onto the podcast. And then you emailed us, which was <laughs> incredible. How, how did you um, find out about us, about relative run readiness? Is, is it because we changed the name and it came up on your radar? Uh, possibly. I know you've only just changed your name recently. I, um, I think it was due to, because I'm always constantly listening to podcasts and constantly listening to running podcasts. It may have come up as the Apple kind of suggestion podcast you may like based on what I'm already listening. Okay. So, um, yeah, just loved what you're about. Saw that you 
changed your name and um, taken the new approach and yeah, thought I'd reach out. It sounded really cool. Well, wonderful. And I know I'm just coming across as just uh, such a student of yours, but I seriously started thinking about changing the name and niching it down when I heard you talk about doing the same and what you had done with your podcast. So uh, that helped me a lot. But talking about these progressions, Brody, and I, I know that you are pretty big on getting people into strength training and getting them to understand that mechanical loading is important for athletes. And when I say athletes, everyone listening to me, you're an athlete, especially when you're trying to uh, come into a program like a running program that is actually a high level of coordination. So, you know, when you are getting out there and taking your first few steps all the way to your first race where you have a specific time in mind now that you want to try to accomplish those progressions, I think are something that are misunderstood. And we oftentimes get out the door, I think doing maybe too much too soon, but not really understanding how we can bridge that gap. So what I would love to talk to you about a little bit is with your transparency, you're always just admitting to your audience, hey, I had this injury and this is how I overcame it. And I just love that because a physio saying, hey, I didn't necessarily have the right progressions before. I didn't know all the answers. This was my process. And this is how I was able to accomplish these things and figure out my body a little bit better. So I'd like to start with your progressions. Um, and I know this might be a little bit redundant for you because you talk about this constantly in your podcast, but for our listeners, how did you progress as a runner and maybe share with us some of the things that you felt valuable in order to help you to be able to achieve your passion, your running goals? Yeah. So um, I, I do agree with you. Like people don't consider themselves as athletes if they're just like a recreational runner, but I do think, find the vast majority of recreational runners, they either want to improve their race times or they want to not get injured or decrease their risk of injury. And you do have to do um, those practices that athletes do in order to achieve both of those things. And so um, me as a runner, I've probably, I started late in life. I probably started in my early twenties and was doing basketball before that and started off with the usual sort of following a, a run plan and wanted to build up to a half marathon. And I actually had quite a, a large base of cardio and strength to go along with like, as I jumped into running or already the pre-existing strength from basketball was already there, but I did manage to break down very quickly and just did something new, which is what every runner needs to understand is the body. You might be strong and you might be extremely fit, but the body still needs to adapt to its change in environment and the change of the demands in the body. And that's exactly what it was. I wasn't used to endurance running and straight away my calves were burning. My calves felt constantly tight just because they were being overworked and not used to engaging for such a long period of time. It was used to jumping and sprinting short distances, but not constantly being engaged. And I do, I am a midfoot to four foot runner. That was what I naturally fell into and actually started doing a little bit more heel striking when I was a runner, just to give my calves a bit of a rest. Um, and then once my calves built up and they had the endurance, I slowly transitioned back to midfoot, four foot strike striking and yeah, built up from there 
built up to a half marathon and did that probably six months into my running. After that, um, I went to a marathon, which was two to three months after the half, which was way too much of a jump. And so broke down. (laughs) Um, And this is when, this is around about the time that I started investing in some running knowledge and starting to learn the sort of universal principles, but I was constantly breaking down at that stage. Um, So got up to the marathon, completed it and started backing off the distance and uh, delved into triathlons. So progressed to triathlons, a bit of variety. Um, And now I'm sort of honed in on a little bit of shorter stuff. I love trails. I love doing trail running um, here in uh, the winter, but um, yeah, I'm just loving the variety at the moment, not necessarily training for anything running specifically. I do have a few triathlons and cycling events that are coming up, um, but I do want full transparency when I am on the podcast because I'm not trying to be this guru who implements all these strategies and it's successful and it's like I'm now running, you know, as fast as I want, as far as I want, pain-free um, because I do recognize that sometimes injuries are unavoidable. We can try and do, we can train as smart as we can and get the the risk of injury down as close to zero as we can, but we can never get it to zero. I think it is, I think there is some magic in knowing that um, we can get as close to zero as we can, but as soon as symptoms do arise, which is inevitable, depending on the intensity that you're training at, um, there it's knowing what to do in those early stages that will foster maybe a five day or six day injury rather than a six week injury or a six month injury, because it's been mismanaged for so long in those early days. Um, So I think the real magic is if you do arise with an injury, getting over it for in a week and then getting back in and like maintaining that consistency because once you're injured at six month injury, you're out, um, you're not keeping up with that same consistency. And that's when you really struggle to progress as a runner. Um, but I also think if you've, if you've been running for several years and you don't break down either one, you're those lucky people who just seem to be really resilient. And there are those runners out there. Um, or you're probably being really a bit too conservative. Um, the runners that don't get injured are the ones that do the same 5k run every Saturday and don't want to get faster. They don't want to increase their distance. They don't have any ambitions to do more. They're just happy to do what they do. Um, they're the ones that don't really break down because they're just really conservative in this safe zone. Um, so I do say to runners, if they're breaking down, I'm like, well, you're probably um, pushing yourself. We can probably find some errors. We can probably find some things that you can do in the early days to help overcome it. But being injured is just a, a part of being an athlete. It's a part of running and try not to be so down on yourself. It is just a, a way of life. And I might've digressed a little bit from your answer, but um, yeah, I'm happy to um, delve into our next topic. Yeah, no, I think that was great. It, just learning that type of history from somebody like yourself is, uh, I, th- I think, very valuable. We live in that era now where I don't envy a lot of the younger athletes, especially that I start to work with, where they're constantly on social media and seeing what the elites are doing. And I think a lot of times, even when we're that 40 something athlete or even uh, older, where we're trying to get progress, we're trying to get to that next level. Let's just say that we're building from the 5k to the 10k now. 
And yet we're kind of being influenced by some of what the elites are doing, even if we don't realize that. And I think that's a big mistake because the elites to me are the worst people to, uh, to try to copy, right? <laughs> they are um, gliding along. They have maybe some attributes that they were born with and some resiliency as well. And that's fantastic. But as I talk to people about athletes like Gwen Jorgensen that uh, I'm fortunate enough to work with, the the thing is with the type of whips that she has and the type of gliding that she's able to do, that is that's so rare to have those mechanics and those attributes. So what she does in her training program with me would look very, very different than especially what a generalized program to start would look like. And I believe everybody should specialize, but in the beginning, looking at where we can maximize our own benefits and our own performances, that comes down to basics. And I call it the Miyagi method, right? And that's comes from the karate kid. I don't know. Do you watch those kind of movies over there in Australia? Yeah. 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 I've seen karate kid. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about? And it's, we just want to keep it simple and master those basics first. And I think, for example, with a running program, when we start, I do a lot of fractionalized programming, right? So somebody might start with a 30 second to one minute running uh, with followed by a minute of walking. And they might progress into something more like three minutes of running and one minute of walking, eventually doing more like nine minutes of running and one minute of walking. And that might take anywhere from a few months or even longer, depending on the, the person. What I like to do is to start to build strength into their program. So there's no courage in defeated mechanics. That's one of the phrases we use often here. And that comes from Bobby McGee the great running coach that that I get to partner with in the programming. And I'll tell you that with Defeated Mechanics, and Brody, this is something I'd like you to speak on a little bit more to delve into, but I think that that's also something we have to realize. We don't all have the same uh, leg lengths. We don't have all the same femur lengths. We have different torsos. So when we're trying to run at a certain gait or rating, right? This is where there's some misconceptions on, well, I'm supposed to be running at uh, 100 revolutions per minute, right? Or 200 steps. That's supposed to be, uh, you know, a gold standard or say between 90 and 100. And of course, we know that that's not, that's just a sort of mean, that's an average, but that's not something that we really think we need to concern ourselves with uh, too much. And I love the episodes where you brought up those kind of examples and how people need to find what works for them. So will you talk a little bit about how you progress or even how you move towards going into maybe faster running or longer running efforts over, say, a course of a year or two years with one of your clients? Yeah, sure. And I totally agree with what you're saying. I think um, there's individual variability in a runner and that's like what you're talking about before. If someone compares themselves to the elites, like it's good to, sometimes it's good to follow the elites only if you can draw the right amount of inspiration from them. Like it's very good to follow them for the right reasons, but a lot of people tend to um, pay attention to the elites and 
draw, like they try and mimic their training and try and be like, that's what they're doing and they're performing at the elite level. This is what I should be doing. It's not that transferable, but I do think there are some benefits to following. I don't really follow elites, but I guess some people who might draw motivation to get out and run because they're following those might um, have some benefits. But if I had a runner who already has a base and they wanted to improve their speed, let's say they want to increase their marathon time, or if they wanted to increase a 5k PB, um, I'm definitely like, I'm definitely one for doing interval training. It's very, very important. Um, so in the same way that a beginner runner would do their walk runs, like you suggested, and that's exactly the same method that I use, you do the exact same, but for speed. So instead of doing our walk run, we're doing our jog run or jog fast run and sort of slowly weaving in more and more speed and adjusting those numbers and adjusting the speed, adjusting the intervals, depending on how your body's responding. And if they are, let's say they're not managing an injury for the simplistic um, example, they would start with, you know, maybe four minutes of a jog and then one minute of running and seeing how they go, repeat that five times and just seeing how they feel, just seeing what their technique is like and seeing how their body responds over the week and day by day, but week by week also, if their calves start getting a bit tight, their hips start get feeling a bit stiff, they get that sensation of stiffness. Um, if they feel their shins are starting to get a little bit tight, that's when we need to adjust to the individual. And why I love coaches and why I love people who, um, health professionals that just follow the, the runner along their progress is they're able to adapt to that runner as an individual because, like you said, there's variability there. And then just taking it on, just like slowly integrating more and more of that speed work. Yes, we want to create some variety. So they might once a week or once a fortnight or sometimes more frequently, they might do some um, hill sessions. Hill sessions are great for increasing speed. Um, yes, I do need them to start doing some strength training. Um, if they do want to increase their speed and progress, there's tons of evidence to show that um strength work and i'm not saying body weight exercise i'm strength, saying actual strength work will help um increase a endurance runner's performance like it'll help improve your marathon times and it's um very it's very um counterintuitive because people think if i'm an endurance runner i should start training my muscles for endurance so i should start doing my body weight calf raises and doing, you know, three sets of 25 reps. But in fact, the evidence is contrary to that. We do need to start lifting heavier and doing like an eight to 10 rep max range in order to receive those benefits. Otherwise we're just not ticking that strength box. We're just trying to fill an endurance bucket. That's already full. It's already overflowing from all the running that you're doing. Um, so yeah, I would, if someone wanted to progress their way through a year and try and get a bit faster, I would start very gradually in including more and more speed and just seeing how the body feels and just methodically just going through it. Okay. The last two weeks we've done X amount of running. Um, and in that running X amount is, uh, like sprinting or faster running. Let's slowly improve those by five, uh, 10 to 15% per week and just adapt to the body and see how it's feeling. Um, 
there will be weak links or there will be a weakest link in a runner. And we want to make sure that we don't exceed that weak link during those times. Otherwise an injury starts manifesting. Um, so I don't have a particular structure because I am very tailored to the individual based on their history of injuries in the past as well. And yes, we might need to look at cadence and see if there is something we can change there, but exactly what you were saying there, it's, not a one rule fits all when it comes to cadence, like an optimal cadence for someone. We do know based on the research that longer, uh, taller people with longer, lankier legs do naturally fit into an optimal cadence a bit lower than everyone else. Um, whereas those short runners that can tick the legs over really quickly, their cadence might be around the 185, 190. Um, so yeah, just adapt, adapting to the individual, seeing how they're running and then just slowly increasing the speed and then just build up from there. And we do know that speed, if they want to get faster and they want to run faster, it's very subjective because faster might be um, like a, a six minute mile or speed might be an eight minute mile. It just depends on the runner, depends on the goals they have. Um, so that's when, if we do a fast or an intense sort of thing. We might not necessarily go for speed. We might not necessarily follow a particular pace. Maybe we follow like a, um, an intensity, like a rate of perceived exertion, um, kind of realm where we have, sometimes it's like one to 10. So 10 is like max sprinting, whereas one is like a walk or rest or, um, not running. And then we follow a particular scale on that. So your jog might be a three out of 10, but when I want you during your running intervals, I want you doing maybe a six or seven out of 10 intensity um, and just following that. And some runners really like that. They like listening to their body and following to that speed. Others like numbers. They want to say, no, I want to run under a six minute mile pace um, for this period of time. And so it depends on the individual, depends what they want to follow. And I'm more than happy to abide by that because it allow a bit more adherence if you're following that those the structure that they particularly are used to um but yeah there, there are a couple of my tips a bit of my guidance um when trying to increase their running speed yeah i know that's i i love the examples you gave there i think something i call them zatus but back in the day when we were looking at a meal he was one of those runners that had a huge amount of success working very hard on intervals. He won the 5,000, 10,000 meters and the marathon all in one Olympics, right? That'll never be done again. I, I can't imagine, <laughs> right? Just uh, how much we specialize alone now, but it did prove a point where he he didn't look at a watch really, right? He just know he, he went hard for a minute, right? And then he went easy and then he went hard for a minute. And he, he did a lot of accumulation with stuff like that. But I think the point that I took from that is sometimes we have to let go of the numbers and go more off of how we feel. And I find that to be pretty valuable with a lot of people who are so stuck to their watches. I, I think that that is great and we should use those tools for sure. But I think um, I like what you said there, that if somebody is concerned with their pacing, we have to be able to address that and we have to pay attention to their wants and their needs is their process. But I, I try my best to go off of feel a little bit too. So I try to mix that in with athletes where they can start to uh, use the Borg scale, for example, right? And you were talking about um, how many words that you might be able to speak as um, a way to address your rate of perceived effort, right? 
So the Borg scale is something I think can be pretty useful. Do you, do you use that Borg scale at all, Brody? I, if I build a program for someone, most people will know like a return to run program where it's based on distance or it's based on time and you accumulate that mileage over the week. And then if you go week by week, you don't want to increase that by more than say 15%. They, you know, most people get that concept and get that progression. However, I like to factor in intensity into those sessions as well and kind of come up with this arbitrary unit of exercise. And it would be um, on a given day, you were to run, say, um, simplistically, let's say 20 minutes, but I want you to run at five out of 10 intensity or maybe five on the Borg scale. And is sometimes the Borg's out of 20, but let's just say it's the intensity is out of 10. So um, if they're running for 20 minutes on an intensity that's five out of 10, those arbitrary units <clears throat> It equals 100. So we times the intensity by the amount of minutes that you're running. And so that's 100 arbitrary units in that day of exercise. And then you are factoring that in every single day and then coming up with a weekly total. So instead of just saying, I ran 40 miles this week, it would be, I have 750 arbitrary units of exercise this week. And then you make sure that you don't increase that by more than 15% the next week. Um, and you can play around with those intensities however you want, but you will find very quickly that if you are doing an in a high intensity exercise, say like a seven out of 10, those arbitrary units, they escalate very quickly as soon as you start timesing them by the amount of minutes that you're doing at that intensity, um, which makes perfect sense because we don't want to overdo things. And um, if people do like following the numbers or they like listening to their body, it's kind of combining the two. You are having to run at a certain intensity and listen to your body um, and you are following a certain amount of exercise, these arbitrary units um, that I like to do very much with my runners, especially if they're injured, especially if they've had like a grumbly Achilles for several months and they want to get back to running. I want to make sure that the intensity is at the um, the same intensity that we want. And I want to make sure that we're not um, just slowly increasing the mileage, but then doing spikes in intensity because it just doesn't make sense to totally disregard a, a component in your training that is just hidden if you just follow the mileage. Right. Yeah, no. And I like what you're saying there about journaling. Now I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but a lot of what you're talking about takes some, some documenting, takes some journaling, right. Uh, to be able to find your process to say, Hey, this is a seven for me. And this is when, a, what went around that seven that day what was my recovery like? Was it the same as what I had done, let's say a year ago at this time when I was working towards this same progression? Maybe you are now fine tuning things to the point where you're repeating a scale that worked for you towards that main race. Maybe it's the same main race every year. I like to be able to look back and say, well, this is what where I was at last year, but last year, I wasn't, I didn't have a newborn baby, you know, this year I do. So I'm finding that I have, my scale is now a little bit different. And this same session, I may be fit enough, but it's now an eight and 8.5 for me, where it was, it was a seven. 
I'm just not getting the same type of recovery. So that's something that I find difficult though, with a lot of athletes really getting that documentation to be consistent enough so we can go through it and compare. Um, What's your ideas on that, Brody? Do you journal yourself and uh, do you have success having your clients journal? I find a lot of success when my clients journal. I Like I said, I'm not necessarily training for much at the moment, so I just like to go off feel. I like consistency. I like uh, running three times a week, cycling two times a week, and doing my strength training three times a week. Um, when I'm injured, there's a bit more swimming involved in that as well. Um, I just like feel. I just go off feel, um, but I'm not necessarily having the same goals that my clients are. And I do recognize that sometimes um, my clients that come to me, they're not, they're usually, well, they're always injured because I'm a physio and they'll, they'll usually gravitate towards a running coach if they're not injured and wanting to improve. However, I'm the one that most of the clients that I see have several years, uh, several months, sometimes years of a particular injury and it's uh, I'm working with them to get them back to running, getting back to pain-free running. So it's it's a little bit different in terms of the approach, but um, I do get them to document as much as they can, particularly if they've had a long history of injuries and a long history of this, like what they see is like an unpredictable um, symptom production. So they'll not do a whole lot. And then their Achilles flares up on a day and they have no idea why or they go for um, say a 10 K walk and their plantar fasciitis is totally fine. But as soon as they're walking for 10 minutes around the house or on the beach, it sparks up and they have no idea why. And I say, let's document everything. Let's document what you did on that day. Let's document what exercise, what you did outside of running and let's see if we can find some sort of pattern. And so that's why I get them to document a lot and document their symptoms. And a lot of times runners are that type of personality that like the numbers, they like the detail, they like to find patterns somewhere. And so it can really be beneficial. Um, but I totally agree with what you're saying regarding recovery. I do think either one, if you are constantly injured or constantly getting overuse injuries and you're not necessarily having huge spikes in training, but you are getting an overuse injury, there could be the fact that you're just under recovering and you, you always got to think of it like a, a balance, like a seesaw or an equation. You either overtrain or you're under recover. That's why you get injured. It's either you're doing too much too soon or you're doing the exact same mileage, but your body isn't tolerating that mileage um, like it did last month because you've under recovered and having a baby, getting a job promotion, something that increases your level of stress. Maybe your nutrition isn't um, as adequate as it was last month. These certain factors, what I call the hidden dangers, um, they do influence your ability to tolerate load and bounce back from a, a strength session or a run session. And I call them the hidden dangers because Someone might not know that um, they've just lost maybe an hour, an hour and a half of sleep every single night because they've stressed a little bit, um, but they still run the exact same amount or they have to train for a marathon and their long runs start getting longer and longer and longer and they sacrifice sleep to get up earlier to do that run. And so you're increasing your mileage slowly, but you're reducing your sleep, which is the biggest recovery tool you have. And so people can start getting these... um, these injuries due to these hidden dangers. And so what I say is 
the more mileage that you do, the more you need to prioritize recovery. It needs to be higher and higher on the priority list the more that you do. And those ultra runners out there, um, the ones that are really successful, they're putting so much effort into their recovery. They're doing so many, um, they're implementing so much and their sleep is so important. Their nutrition is so important and all their um, methods to reduce their stress is really, really high on their priority list just because they know that they need to absorb all that load they're doing. They need to um, negotiate all that and bounce back from that. So um, I've probably digressed again from your your question, but um, yeah, they're they're my thoughts. Yeah, no, I think digressing leads to some some great answers for people. So go ahead and digress, right? (laughs) This is the Run Smarter podcast that you do. And there's a reason why we call it Run Smarter. So I love when you talk about the advantages of mechanical loading. The way I kind of think of it, if running is the cyclic action, then we can address mechanical loading to sort of bridge the gap a little bit and maybe not be so consumed with running more miles, but just being able to gulp ground with a little bit more strength with more mass specific force and just making those miles count more. Um, you know, and I love that you brought up that you love trail running. I, I love trail running as well. And, uh, I'm, you know, with this year, hopefully we'll get back to some normalcy and I am planning on doing some 50 K's and 50 mile trail races, but, certainly have fallen in love with the process itself. I, I was purely a track and road athlete in my past, but this is something that um, I've really found to, to love, but also taking some of the benefits from, from it. And in other words, a lot of athletes that uh, I work with have never really done much on trails. And I try to get them at least hiking out on the trails, just enjoy even a family hike. And it does so much for the mind and the body but also the proprioception, right? So um, the foot constantly having to make adjustments over rocks and roots and grass and dirt and all these different things that we like to work on and strengthen our positions in, plus just getting to the top of that mountain, you know, that's uh, always just exhilarating to be able to say, hey, look at uh, where we went to today. It doesn't have to all be running. So a lot of um, the long efforts that we do is mostly walking on days like that or can be mostly walking. So I I like to kind of throw that in for some variation. And then even with athletes that are more concerned with, let's say a marathon on the roads, I think that if we can get there and on the trails and do a little bit more work there, that can help us. But what I would love to talk to you a little bit more about is talking about, for example, bodyweight progressions, they have their place. And I think that when it comes to body weight, we can especially initially benefit from some things like this, but I'll just take, for example, anterior pelvic tilt, right? So we have, um, most female athletes have more of a pelvic tilt than most males, but the, the thing that I look at with a tilt is, are we overextending with our hips when we're doing something just as simple as a bridge, right? So a glute bridge. And I might look at that in the evaluation that I'm doing with a, with a new athlete and they might find or feel that they've gone into a neutral position. In other words, I'm sque- I'm squeezing my glutes. I'm in a good position. And actually, when you look at them, they're overextended. They're putting compression on their lower spine. 
um, when I have them now go to take a heavy bar and they do some hip thrusters, for example, right? So this is a learning tool to me for them where they'll, instead of having them look right up at the ceiling, they'll look straight ahead or they'll look at where the wall meets the ceiling. And then I'll have them get that bar up by having them extend through their hips. But there's kind of a natural stopping point where they can't go any further, especially because the bar is heavy enough where it's challenging enough to where they are now feeling a better position with their hips where actually now they're not overextending, they're neutral, and they're actually recruiting their glutes a little bit more, right? So that's that's something I like to use as an example for good mechanical loading that could be a better tool than just body weight. Um, and then sometimes I feel like body weight progressions can do more harm than good because you can get away with overextending those hips. And then you wonder why your hip flexors feel so tight and your back kind of hurts the next day. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts though on, I, I know you talked, I loved, uh, what you said about doing eight to 10 reps. Um, I usually go in the zone of six to 10. So we're really close there, but, um, what, what are your thoughts on that mechanical loading versus body? weight are there examples like that that you like to use well can i first touch on your point around trail running and delving into that a little bit because um i i often talk about a runner their goal is to be a resilient runner you want to throw a lot of things at a runner and they're able to negotiate or successfully cop the the load that they're putting it through and what I like about trails or maybe like obstacle course races or, you know, mixing up your training a lot is you start to build up resiliency and trails are very good for that. If you are used to being a road runner and then you go to a trail where there's a lot of hills, there's a lot of change in uh, surface. There's a lot of like turns that you have to make. Sometimes you have to hurdle over trees. Sometimes you're jumping over things, ducking under things, and you're adapting to what you're putting yourself through there is you are building up your resiliency. You know, you could train for a road marathon and you could build up to your 42 Ks and you are strong enough to do that. But as soon as you deviate from what you've trained for, they start breaking down. Like you could change your shoes instantly and you start getting an injury. Um, And it's not only the mileage, but it's these abrupt changes in your training so that could be terrain that could be changing your shoes that could be changing um something else to do with the surface um but if you allow your body to get used to all these different things all these different factors all this lovely variety then you adapt to that and you become more resilient and so the best runner that i can think of that increases their resiliency is one that does their strength training does this like maybe like a gym class where they're just throwing different movements at them and they're able to negotiate it successfully and they do some trail running and they do some cycling and they do road running and they're just doing all these different things to increase their resiliency yes if you're training for something specifically when it comes down to let's say a couple of months from that event we do want to increase the specificity and train more to a uh, adapt to the event that you're preparing for but during the uh, all the other times during the year you do want a bit of variety maybe even team sports things like that so um, that would be my opinion on the trails and increasing your variety because you're just building up resiliency but yeah when it comes to say body weight exercises i do think that people can 
get away with a lot. They can really um, not identify or highlight their flaws because it's just body weight and they can get away with that um, whatever trick movements or whatever um, lack of muscle recruitment that they might have. But, yeah, we do want to slowly progress them to increase their um, their like reps. So the 6 to 8 to 10, I think I, the average, let's just agree with the average around that 8 to 8, eight rep range. Um, sometimes it's cueing, like you, you're talking about, say, perhaps the lower back might be too stiff and that is identified once we've put on a lot of weight. Um, some things I do recognise that there's individual variations in the human body. Maybe someone might not get a lot of hip extension, but when they're running, they're totally fine. Um, I'm okay with them not doing a, a huge full range functional squat or a huge range functional deadlift if they're doing three quarters of half range totally fine that's not Im- impacting their running then that might be something they want to work on and but it might not and i do think if there are some trick movements or if there are some um, or if someone wants to get better and recruit better muscles then some simple cueing can sometimes work um, some simple variations let's just say if they're not recruiting a lot through the glutes uh, maybe just putting a band around the knees and getting to put some heavy tension on that band while they're doing their movement can be quite nice to help engage things. Um, but it's similar to trying to get someone to run differently, like increase their cadence. You might find some cueing works really well for others. Um, whereas some might just find running to a metronome really helps them. Uh, others, they just really struggle with trying to change their, um, their running style, no matter what you throw at them. The same can be said for strength exercises. If they're, struggling to do a deadlift and you're trying all these different cueings and you're trying all these different feedback for them and they're just not really getting it. Sometimes people pick it up quickly. Sometimes people um, don't. And whether that is due to lower back stiffness or stiffness in the um, the hips or weakness in the hips, um, it all just really will depend on the individual. So it's very tough to come up with one solution for everyone, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does perfectly. And when it comes to mechanical loading, just one thing I like to point out is good exhalation, right? Uh, using breathing patterns that will involve more internal rotation of the ribs that help to involve the transverse abdominis more effectively. Those deeper abdominal wall muscles, I think, get engaged when you want to pay attention. So you start to lift a little bit heavier, you're going to use better force exhalation. And that is something that I tend to coach an athlete through a little bit more in the beginning, but I find it transfers over to their running pretty effectively where again, you know, body weight, you can kind of get away with not really having to pay attention to your breathing patterns, for example. Right. So that's another way I like to introduce breathing patterns with more, let's say longer or stronger forced exhalation. And that to me is a bridge that we should be crossing when we're trying to have something more relative to our breathing patterns when we, when we run. Uh, would you agree with that, Brody? Um, yeah, I've played around with a bit of breathing, different breathing techniques. Um, and when, uh, well, when gyms are open, um, I usually 
Um, in the past, I have tried to go heavy with my squats, deadlifts, lunges, those sort of things. And I do recognize when it gets to a certain amount of heaviness, like if I'm doing say a five, four or five rep max, so like quite heavy stuff, um, I do need to change my breathing patterns a little bit in order to um, feel better about myself. I have had low back pain um, in the past, all the way back from my basketball days. Um, but I have found that if I'm not um, quite, if I'm not in a very good form, if I'm not in a very good position and I have to try and deadlift a certain amount, um, my back will start being compromised. I do find if I hold my breath for maybe like two seconds during that really intense part and then breathe out through the rest or at the top, that really, really helps me. Um, I'm not too sure about the evidence of what the evidence might support. All I've done is tried different methods for me and found that's really worked for me. Um, and if someone has very similar experience to me, that's what I would probably recommend. Um, however, I have been trained in say Pilates and like lower intensity sort of things. And I do do different breathing cueing techniques for them during a particular exercise compared to if they were doing something heavy or something quite, um, quite challenging for them. Um, so it depends on the exercise, depend on the intensity. Um, but yeah, I like to always in, uh, tailor to the individual um, instead of like a, a strict rule for breathing for any particular movement pattern. Yeah, right. No, fantastic. And just on that, uh, I had Jessica Dorrington on the podcast and she's a pelvic floor specialist. I was telling you a little bit about her Brody, but she has some some good breathing tips and some things that you can do to uh, figure out what works for you better on breathing patterns. So for example, if there's tenting, which you've probably heard of as a physio um, experience with the doming effect, um, some athletes are better breathing in first before they're, they breathe out. And you can see that in your tenting or doming. So those of you guys, if you're not quite sure what this looks like, we have some links that you can look at to see what that uh, may look like for you. But I like what you're saying there. Everybody is different and you've got to figure out what works. And then when it comes to getting into some of these heavier lifts, one thing that I would like to just point out, I mentioned doing the, uh, the hip thrusters with the barbell. Now to me, that's something that Brett Contreras, he, he made that movement a little bit more popular and accepted even, right. Even with the guys out there, right. Not just, uh, not just the chick movement. Right. But, uh, also just because I think gym age really matters. So I know Brody, you've done CrossFit in the past and you, you, uh, have used the benefits of that. Now I, personally like to look at what a gym age is for somebody and what they have experience doing. So when it comes to heavy lifts, though, one thing I want to be, um, I, I want to point out is I might have somebody do, let's say a heavy sled push because they're in a good mechanical position for that. It's, it's a lot easier to understand how to get yourself into good mechanics for a heavy sled push and you're getting the benefits of that mechanical loading but there's not a lot of technique involved with it uh, similar with the barbell hip thrust so i think that we 
can start off with things like that a little bit more. And as we get more proficient, then we can get into some of the more complex movement patterns that I just think takes a little bit more coordination and experience. So um, oftentimes, so I'll talk to somebody who's experienced back pain or, you know, I was doing deadlifts and I hurt my back and really, did we spend, did we use progressions to get proficient with that pattern? Or did we just go heavy within a few months of ever doing a deadlift, right? So I think that is just something I want to bring out, just knowing your experience level and your gym age, because a certain pattern worked for so-and-so doesn't mean you necessarily need to go heavy in that pattern. There's a thousand different ways that we can go heavy or heavy enough to create enough of a stimulus for our body to have to respond because at the end of the day, we're just trying to make progress, right? So that's just where we're at right now versus where we want to be. And so doing what's right for you, but um, I think using movements that are a little bit easier technique wise to adjust to in the beginning, that will probably yield all the benefits that you're looking for, but lowering the risk, right? So risk versus reward. And when you're talking about the eight reps, let's say as being a sweet spot, I like that too, because when we talk to an athlete and saying, what are your, what's your effort level or what are your reps in reserve? So we might say we go to eight reps in a particular movement, let's say a Bulgarian, right? So we have our back foot elevated, our front foot's on the ground, and we're essentially doing the equivalent of a single leg squat, right? And when we're doing that particular movement, we might say get to seven reps on our right leg and on our left leg, we might get to um, let's say five reps. So we can see that there is um, a difference in the strength between the two sides and we can work on that, but we can also, I think, safely test on that instead of doing a one rep max, which I don't think is really relevant for most runners. We can look at this more along the lines of say that six to 10 rep progression and saying, okay, well now we've gotten to eight reps. We've done the training. We're doing eight reps on both sides. We've kind of equalized that strength out and we can test you and say, okay, you think you could do 10 reps. You have at least two reps in reserve. Let's test you today and see if we can get to 10 reps on both sides. And now we know we can go up in weight, right? So I kind of like that um, that eight rep as a sort of sweet spot. Cause it also gives, it makes it easy to know what your reps and reserves might be just using 10 as an easy number. I got to eight, I have two reps in reserve. That's the 10, right? Um, that's, that's kind of how I approach that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that Brody? Um, yeah, I'd agree. And I, there is some evidence to show that if you don't, if you do your reps and don't get to your max, um, and you're okay and you're, I guess, um, recovered enough to do another set and then you're recovered enough to do it a couple of days later that you progress and get you build up your strength quicker than if you were to do a 10 rep max where you can't possibly do another rep and then you put it down and then you're exhausted. Sometimes it's good to have a couple of reps in reserve and slowly build up that way because you actually get stronger. Um, and I think there's probably something to be said um, talking on this topic that you might start with body weight. You might need to start with body weight exercises because if we know anything from injuries, we don't want to overdo things. We don't want to do too much too soon, too heavy, too soon. 
Um, and so if people are listening and being like, okay, I know Matt said I should start lifting heavy or I know I'll follow Brody's advice. Um, if you've never done strength training before, if you've never lifted heavy weights, if you've never done these sort of movements before, you need to start with body weight. But the goal in mind should be to slowly progress and slowly increase your weights and not just stick to body weight and increase your reps that way. Um, the overall should go, goal should be to slowly pile on those weights. Um, but if you are really struggling to um, add the weights, the other component that we're missing here is some sort of power-based exercises, some sort of plyometric exercises, which would involve like lighter weights, but at a quick, like explosive sort of movement, which does take time and does take time for the body to adapt, but might be something that you tap into um, as a, just a general, um, rule like box jumps or something that doesn't require a heavy amount of form or like really focused on a particular type of form, maybe build up some strength that way before slowly increasing the weights. If you're really struggling to adapt to increasing weight. So there's variety that we can offer and your knowledge and level of expertise with variety of exercises is spot on probably more than mine. And, um, yeah, I think there's always ways around if you do get stuck at a particular point, coming up with something, some, some sort of variety, some sort of variation that will still have you progressing forward if you do manage to get stuck. Yeah, no, I, I, and Brody, thank you for that. By the way, I, I don't know if, uh, if, if I know more, but I would, I would say this, that with the athletes that I've worked with over the years, what I just want to share a couple common things and, and get your input on this, but I absolutely believe plyometrics are important for everybody. Um, I've, I have a 80 year old athlete that he hikes, uh, goes out and does 20, 25 mile hikes, thinks nothing of it has a 40 pound pack on, you know, the whole deal, um, an amazing man. And his plyometrics are pogos, right? Um, we focus on jump rope for coordination. Now that to me is really relative for what he's trying to do. Um, I get a little frustrated when I see people doing, let's say, box jumps that are quite elevated and they're really focused on a lot more hip flexion, just trying to get up on that box. There's nothing wrong with box jumps. It's just why. What 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 is your why? And do you also have uh, or establish the, the base in order to uh, be able to load properly when your feet hit the ground, right? Do you have that collapse? Are your knees kissing? You know, what's going on? And you'd be surprised, I think, Brody, you wouldn't be maybe, but people would be surprised looking at elite level athletes that walking into the gym floor and seeing them do box jumps and they're marathoners and their knees are kissing when they're when they hit the ground. And I'm thinking, what the heck are they doing this for? You know, what is the purpose of this? Now, uh, again, um, not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to share if you're listening and you do box jumps, maybe you are doing them with good sound mechanics. But in other words, let's make sure that we progress these levels up as we get more fit and as we get a better base, then we can start to get into what I call the bells and whistles more, right? But 
with that kind of a box jump, for example, where you are, your feet are landing on top of, let's say a 42 inch box and you're predominantly in hip flexion to get into that movement, just saying, okay, what is that going to benefit me or why am I doing that? Right? So I have a girl that was, she actually set the world record in the high jump for juniors when she was 15 at the Olympic trials. And um, after I worked with her, she went on to play for UConn and she has really long femurs. So my point is even for somebody, a vertical athlete like her, my purpose or my goal with somebody like her was always more in getting better reactive power off of the ground. So that mass specific force pushing down into the ground, but specifically more through her ankle. That's what I was looking at more, right? What, what kind of power are we distributing for, let's say dunking the basketball? And do we really need to get into those greater depth positions? And uh, she ended up losing about six inches on her vert focusing on the traditional squat and going ass to grass, which with her femurs being so long was not great on her mechanics and put a lot of stress on her back. And of course, she lost so much mobility in her ankles doing that, even though the squat is supposed to be something that you work on for ankle mobility, there is a tipping point. And I like what you said before, not everybody needs to go into uh, the same ranges, right? So, you know, what is the why again? So I know I kind of said a mouthful there, Brody, but any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, and I think there's the the balance between like specificity and variety. I think obviously if you're doing say box jumps and your knees are collapsing, kissing each other, then this probably you need to um, have a bit of an easier variety or you need some cueing or you need to change some sort of progression because that's not what we want. We want a really good landing strategy. Um, there is some science to show that like lower boxes people do start to improve their propulsion. But once it gets to a certain height and you start going higher and higher and higher, it's just a case of how quickly you want to activate your hip flexors and how mobile your hips actually are. That's when you start getting achieving those higher amounts. And so it probably gets to a point where it's not really that um, there's no point in going higher. Um, but that's where I guess um you might want to change up. Let's just say someone wants to be more spe uh, more specific to a runner and they want to improve their propulsion. Um, you would do things like skipping. You would do things like single leg skipping, but you could also do a box that is say four or five inches high. And then you're just um, bounding, you're bounding up and down, up and down, up and down onto this um, low box and having a nice rigid strategy, having a nice rigid land um, onto the box and off the box, um, coming up with just ideas that way. And if you are doing say the traditional CrossFit um, box jump, where it's say um, three or maybe four or five feet and you're jumping up onto that, technically that's not a plyometric exercise. It's not a, um, it is a bit of power to get onto the box, but it's not what we want with plyometrics is like a quick reaction and then a quick propulsion straight after that. We want to absorb load and release load in a really quick fashion. So that would be like a really, really small box and you're just bounding up and down, up and down, up and down, sometimes single leg and progressing that way. Um, <clears throat> propulsion wise, you're probably best off doing skipping, like going high in the air if you are a runner and wanting to add to some specificity. 
but like I said, sometimes variety, sometimes you might do a movement that is totally unlike a running mechanics and that's just adding to your resiliency. Um, it might not something, it might not be something you want to really focus on if you have to prepare for a running event, but, um, yeah, I, I always like just throwing my body at different things, even upper body stuff. Um, even just doing things like chin-ups or going for a swim looks nothing like a running action, but you're still building up resiliency that way. Yeah, no, you know what? You're, uh, you're a brother from another mother, Brody. Okay. Because <laughs> you would think that we, uh, we compared notes before this, but with that young lady I was talking about, we went to three and a half inch box and we worked on ankle stiffness. And even though she's, she's now a professional basketball player. Um, but what, what we worked on with her is, was essentially running drills, the mechanic drills that we do a lot for plyometrics, uh, for, for propulsion, exactly what you said. So I love, I love that. And I think that stiff ankles are such an important factor that we really need to pay attention to yet. These drills are also, I think, um, easier fundamentally to, to be able to get to, you start off with some pogos, you work on a little bit of single leg, you go with some coordination with jump rope, and then you start to incorporate maybe some of these box drills that are, um, a couple inches off the ground and then working your way up. Right. So I, I like what you're saying there. That's, um, music to my ears that, that you have that same philosophy. Now, if I could just pick your brain on one more thing, I want to respect your time. So I'll ask you one more question, but as a strength coach, um, over the years, I found that more, you say athletes come to you, they're injured because you're a, a physio. Well, strength coaches get athletes that are injured more often than not. Right. And so I wanted to stay within my scope for so years. I just referred athletes out to a good PT that I work with here, but I just started to shadow him and, and try to understand what it is that he was doing with them. That's where I learned a lot of my process. And I did that for about four years. What I did at the same time though, is I got my LMT license. So I was able to do more hands-on type of work, but ironically, what I learned in that process was as an LMT, um, I personally, now this is, I don't make a living as an LMT. I have my license, but that's not, I've actually never charged somebody to come in and get on a table and, and work on them. I just wanted to be able to have the certification and the license rather to, to, uh, to help somebody. But also what I found was that whole DNIC principle. So that diffused noxious inhibitory control mechanism, which is basically the idea that, um, you know, my knee hurts. Okay. So if I come over and I were to stomp you on your foot, does your knee hurt anymore? Well, no, my foot hurts really bad. Right. Um, so when we take something like foam rolling and we're going to roll out the T band and we say, okay, you can't really make an effect there on the T band because that is such a thick area that, um, that rolling out with maybe an actual steamroll could, could do, and then you would crush your, your femur. Right. But what I, what I think happens there is because we have some distraction because that area now has some, um, some intentional, um, you know, distraction that you brought to it by rolling it out, then the knee does feel better. But what my experience is that that is going to be a temporary effect. And if it helps somebody to get up and now start to load patterns that will help them, then great, do it. But 
for me, it's all about what those, that protocol you're going to do to follow up with, especially let's say in a 12 to 24 hour cycle. So what are we doing to turn on the glute mead, right? What are we doing to turn off the TFL? Um, are we getting in some, let's say, uh, frontal plane work with some lateral leg raises? Are we working on positions that are going to help to strengthen those weaker areas or those areas that are more challenged? And so what I don't like about the DNIC work, um, all the rolling out or even going to see a professional to get manual therapy, um, even seeing a chiropractor, right? It's, there's nothing wrong with those things, but to me, it gives that idea that this is going to be my solution, whereas the real solution is you and sticking with a protocol to strengthen your position in the first place. So as a physio, I would I listen to your podcast, so I know your answers really, but I would love to know what you think about this. I'd love my audience to hear what you think about this, Brody. If I had the last question of the interview, I mean, it's like, it could be a whole nother podcast topic, a whole nother episode. We could chat for an hour about this. Yeah. That wasn't um, fair to me. I know. <laughs> um, I like from my experience and I mainly do online physio these days working with runners, but occasionally I will get into the clinic and start seeing people face to face and knowing what I know about manual therapy and knowing the the benefits and the effects that manual therapy has. As soon as I have someone come in with a sore shoulder, a sore hip, a sore knee, I definitely do hands-on work and I do know the true benefits it has. We're not, the science isn't clear what it's doing physically. What we do know is that the nervous system is very powerful and we know the, the nervous system does respond to different stimuli and does have a inhibitory control. Um, but we're just unsure of like the actual mechanics that is actually happening. Um, we do know a lot about pain science and what, um, the inhibitory pathway does for pain, but in terms of the benefits of having a massage and the effects of having a massage, um, I have a client just say, if they come with knee pain, we do some, um, provocating tests. They do a squat, they do a lunge, they, they experience pain. We get them on the table. We do some soft tissue work. They bounce up and they're feeling totally fine. They're feeling great. Um, so that's why we continue doing it because it has real true powerful effects. And the, what you were alluding to as well, that's only the short term that could return a couple of hours later, a couple of days later, depending on the individual, depending on the experience that they've had, depending on their beliefs, depending on um, what has worked for them in the past. We do know that it varies. We don't have any control of being like, yes, your pain will return in two days. We don't know. Um, it could never return because it could have just been this psychosomatic thing that they've just managed to sort out. Um, but what we do know is we do some soft tissue work. We do some manual therapy stuff that we not entirely sure what goes on, but we know it has benefits. But then we slowly transition to a strategy that we do know that works and we do know that works in the long term. And that is our strength and conditioning. That is our rehab exercises. That is um, doing something specifically for that injury. And so you kind of need the combination of the two because people come in wanting the relief. They want, uh, even if it's just short-term relief, that's what they want. And if you can get a, enough buy-in to create those effects, then they're going to adhere to those long-term solutions that you opt, that you give them. And they'll adhere to the strengthening exercise as long as that communication's there. Um, so yes, I do think that, um, there's definitely a place for some sort of massage therapy, definitely worth, um, 
trying a few different things if, if one strategy isn't working for you because foam rollers can work for a lot of runners. But um, if it's not working for you, then don't persist with it. Try something else. And that might be, it might not work for you because of beliefs or because you're just like not enjoying the experience. You're not um, enhancing that placebo effect because you're just like, oh God, this hurts. This I'm wasting my time, blah, blah, blah. Those thoughts going through your head every time you foam roll. It's not really going to have as powerful of an effect. Um, but I do think there is a bit of a trap when it comes to massage and manual therapy. And it's those that those therapists that only will rely on hands-on therapy and convince the the subject that they need this, they need this twice a week. Um, otherwise you're not going to get better. What we're doing is releasing this and um, inhibiting this in order to engage this. And they go through this X, Y, Z through the kinetic chain. And this is why you're falling to pieces, but then they don't offer that long-term strategy and they're just, um, coming up with this, what I'm going to call a business model because it is good for business, um, getting people just to come in and rely solely on their hands-on work. And it's very disempowering because they're only relying on this therapist to work on them once a week or twice a week or once a month um, and not offering those long-term benefits. So try not to fall into that trap. If you are a runner that has like some sort of massage um, person or a manual therapy, physio, physical therapist, Cairo, that's only focusing on the short-term relief and you're constantly getting in pain a couple of days later and coming back for that short-term relief over and over and over again, there is a big trap to be said for that. Um, so yeah, I guess that would be my thoughts. Yeah, no, that's, listen, fantastic. I, I do want to say that, well, first you had an episode with um, Alice uh, San Vito. San Vito. Yeah, great episode. I highly suggest you guys listen to to that on the Run Smarter podcast. But this was what she essentially talked about. And I myself going through LMT school, and my wife is also an LMT. She has a full-time brick and mortar business where she's a trainer like me, but her focus is as an LMT, which is with me, it's like in reverse. And I, I do want to clarify and say that I, I think there's a lot of benefit. And what she will remind me of is, look, if somebody's not going to do any of these assignments I give them, if they're if if they choose to just come in and see me more often they feel better. That's their choice. And I feel better helping them feel better. And I think that's very important to note. Right. But yeah, as a coach, as a performance coach, that's when I start to feel more like what you just talked about, where I don't want people to think that this is their solution. And although I'm happy to do some manual work, I just want them to understand that it should be followed up with uh, what they can control, not what I'm controlling, but what they can control. And by giving them that power to say, look, here's three to five movements and do these movements every day. These are movements that will help you with your posture, what the 
situation is that are that the movements are now specific to helping you with these needs. And that's what uh, Aaron, my wife, will tend to do. She'll always give three to five movements. This is what I suggest you do. Some people do it um, and they end up finding that they're no longer needing her in that way, but they keep coming. So just as a business side of things, I just want to point out that we're not taught that in LMT school to, to show these movements or to subscribe movements. And maybe for a good reason, because that's a whole nother job title, right? But these are things where I think if the person is empowered and given some choices and saying, hey, this is what I can control, that's what I would like to see happening more. Um, and the people who do that as professionals are only going to get more referrals, more business because they're helping people more, right, Brody? And especially if you are a massage therapist that might not have the confidence in teaching someone some strength exercises, find someone to refer them to and build a network that way. Because if you have the experience for the client is better, if you do like an incredible massage, they're feeling better and you say, fantastic. Um, if they're not, if they don't have a PT or if they don't have someone, some strength and conditioning coach, um, refer them to someone. And then that strength and conditioning coach will be like, oh, um, if someone is tight or sore, they'll refer back to the massage therapist. And it's just, it's allowing for a better experience for the client and it's allowing better experience for the, um, for the professionals. And it's not keeping within this strict, um, zone. Like I know here in, um, Australia, it's probably around the world, the physiotherapists of the world, they hate the chiros and they hate their practices and they hate the osteos. They we're all just so divided. But um, one thing that I love about my podcast is that I get chiros onto my podcast and I get other health professionals that we do share this knowledge and the ones that are very well versed in the evidence. We can learn off each other and we can actually grow from each other rather than just being so divided and so like held into our own echo chamber and our own beliefs. Um, it's very, very limiting. And so the same way that um, a massage therapist might have this limited belief around like they have the answer and they have all the answers, um, you're just only limiting your own growth and limiting your own experience, well, the client's own experience. So there can be some really powerful things once you start collaborating and um, networking. Absolutely. And that's uh, also why I love having experts like you on the podcast because there are people that may need that bridge with a physio like yourself who loves to run and has great progressions for running. And then maybe at a certain point, they can go into more of a strength bridge with somebody like me, right? So there's there's um, ways that we can complement each other, but we're, we're better together. And as Bobby says, one and one doesn't make two, it makes 11. So when we work together like this, it's, it's so much better for serving the people who trust us. And I uh, so appreciate your conversation with me today. We could have another hour, but I know that it's time to wrap this up. And I hope we get to have you on again in the future, Brody. Um, where can people find you? Where can people listen to you? So uh, they can search wherever they're listening to this podcast. They just search the Run Smarter podcast and it'll pop up. Uh, I am quite active on Instagram. So my handle is at Run Smarter Series. And uh, there's obviously the um, Facebook group for the podcast if you want to jump on and say hi. 
most people will reach out to me either via um, Facebook or via Instagram. Um, they're the main uh, ones. I do have a website, um, runsmarter.online is where you can find the blogs and find the podcast episodes and find some stuff about me. Um, so I think that there are enough links if people are interested. Nice, nice. Well, like I said at the beginning, just um, I've been listening to you myself a while, and certainly I didn't think I was going to have you on my podcast when I first started listening. I just love the content, and just uh, maybe it's your accent, Brody. You just, you know, you you're very <laughs> uh, compelling, but I swear that accent it, it makes you sound even smarter somehow. I, I don't know what that is, but uh, I love. I'll make sure to keep it then. <laughs> That's right. Love the accent. <laughs> I love it. And uh, guys, thank. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Relative Run Readiness Podcast. We hope this served you today. We know there's a lot of great information out there that we can give you. We want to give you the right choices so you can control and have that decision to make whether or not your process of success involves some of these tips we gave today. We hope it does, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for coming on, Brody. Thank you very much, Matt. Had fun. Yeah, man.